Rodney, it's happening. So you know I'm a really big fan of burpees. I, I, I you're actually a fan of them, huh? Oh yeah. I mean, I mm. it's like actually it's it's not like running because I hate running. I uh-huh. do. They're painful, but uh-huh. I actually like burpees. Uh, I love the what they do for me. And as far as an exercise, it's it's a concise, compact thing that I can do anywhere. I just need what like three feet or something like that, five feet, and twenty calories. Burn like it's just it gets it done. It's in and out. Yeah. And I really like them. I recently found eight counts, which is like a different version of sort of a burpee, no jump at the top that I'm really liking. It's, it's nice because it's kind of a mix up from just the burpee. Mm-hmm. And uh, I really like them. It's kind of a mental, it's a mind F because you count while you do it and there's eight steps and I miss steps and mix the numbers up all the time. So it's kind of a mental training along with physical which is probably what i think it's seals it's some special ops team that i got it from that's probably why they do it because you know day two they're in like hour 60 something that would be day three of, <laughs> <laughs> of come to more in common where we do math <laughs> we do math uh they're in day three of whatever and it's like doing eight counts and they don't even know who they are and they've got to you know you mess it up and then you got to redo it but anyway eight counts they're good Maybe I'll do a video on our stories or something of doing an A-count for you. I like that. I like that. I like that you like that. All right, let's get started, Rodney. Again, we're in season four, talking about American ideals. As we all know, there are many shades to today's America. Today, we are with Noel Silver. Land of the free, home of the brave, and all of that. We're here, and look, sometimes people forget that compassion is a part of this American experiment, and it is an experiment. Some things have failed, very much so. Some things are succeeding, and we're here to ground you in some of this. Now, yeah, and speaking of experiments, with Noel Silver, we talk a lot about the experiment of artificial intelligence. She's an expert in the field, has spent a lot of time. In fact, she was one of the first 10 employees on Amazon's Alexa. So she's got a lot of insight and a lot of, a lot of knowledge to drop. We talk about ethical decay. Shout out to our boy, Simon Sinek, who's not actually our boy, but we would love him to be someday. What up, man? <laughs> And and the ethics of facial recognition, and then of course we get into Noel's uh, origin story, right? So hey, hey Simon, where, where, how about you give me your email address and we just hang out right now? <laughs> well, where could Simon find us if he really wanted to? Simon can find us and all things more in common at moreincommonpod.com. Don't forget the pod. And look, wherever you're listening to us, if you're if you're digging it. Just just hit that hit that like, hit that subscribe, and if you're really digging us, take an extra minute and leave a review because that helps us out and helps us do more of these things. So we appreciate you. Join us as we anchor humanity in compassionate conversation and we get into this awesome conversation with Noel Silver. Let's do we. Let's go. So right now we're in this infancy stage of taking AI, which used to be research, and no one really cared about it from that perspective because it was just research. It was people's kind of fun passion projects. But now it's mainstream. 
and it's in products that people are you know using on their phones and in their laptops so i feel like there needs to be we need to take a different look at it and create some new mechanisms for people to stop that development from happening as opposed to you know what it looks like in academia because it's not academia anymore it's not an experience it's an experiment but it's an experiment with real people real lives um and we're starting to see that impact across industries Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the More in Common podcast. Today, we are with Noelle Silver. Up top, she's a mom. She's a pretty cool person. Uh, she's the founder of the AI Leadership Institute and Women in AI. She's the head of instruction for data science, analytics, and full stack development at HackerU, building education programs for universities. She's an ambassador for the responsible and ethical use of AI, and she is passionate about mindful leadership, work-life harmony, and empowering people to achieve their potential through technology. She specializes in helping technical leaders successfully navigate cloud transformation and develop an AI and voice strategy by delivering keynotes, sessions, and hackathons worldwide. She has spent decades as a trainer, architect, and evangelist for IBM, Red Hat, EMC, Amazon, and the Microsoft. She has been listed as the number one speaker to have at your AI event by readwrite.com and a top influencer voice by voicebot.ai, as well as received an award from VentureBeat for her work mentoring women in the field of AI and emerging technology. Noelle, hello. Hi. How are you? Hi. Thank you. Thank you. Hola. That was so nice. Thank you for saying all those things. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank, thank you for doing all those things. Wow. I should shorten that. <laughs> <laughs> isn't it i mean but isn't it kind of cool to hear the things that you do like written like said out loud yes by somebody it's way else. different when you write it down than when you hear someone say it like yeah. it literally like felt heat coming to my cheeks <laughs> let's let's start this conversation off with a question um shall we shall we about ai in particular, right. since that is your area artificial of artificial intelligence for those listening who are not is. overly familiar. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, or, you know, you might might learn something in this in this conversation about it because there's a lot of un, or misunderstood information around artificial intelligence today. But in any case, it is amazing technology and does have the opportunity to provide tons of new, amazing technology for people in the world and jobs, quite honestly. However, there is a significant opportunity as well for ethical mismanagement. You talked about in the lead up, algorithmic fairness. And I'm very interested as we look at social platforms who have used it to deliver content uh, that taps directly into your own psychology or the psychology of their users um, to, I don't want to say manipulate, but manipulate so they get more clicks and more watch time and all of those yeah. other fun things. So how do we, going forward, we've got a lot of things happening. This is one of those things that easily flies under the radar for a lot of people. How do we ensure that AI meets ethical standards while not taking advantage of people and creating more problems than it actually solves? Yeah, I think it's, a, I think it's at least twofold. One is, there is a, there's gotta be accountability for the organizations that leverage this technology, right? There has to be some mechanism for us to be like, by the way, there's a certain percentage of 
a diverse data set that you need to hit. We know what that number looks like, uh, at least in research and academia. Um, so I feel like th there's this accountability that has to happen on the company side. But before that, because that's like a standards body and like in the voice industry, we've got this new thing called the Open Voice Network and a consortium of big companies are coming together to create agreements and, you know, standards. Great. That's going to take probably years. What could we do now? So the other side of that is how do I empower someone in an organization to stand up and what I call like pull the chain right in, in the train, like literally pull the emergency brake and say, this model shouldn't go out to, you know, the world. Um, and here's why, or identify, like, how do I teach engineers the signs of a model that isn't being built ethically? And then how do I give them the tools to articulate that their concern? Um, but again, it has to meet that company being willing to listen to that concern and then do something about it. So right now we're in this infancy stage of taking AI, which used to be research, and no one really cared about it from that perspective because it was just research. It was people's kind of fun passion projects. But now it's mainstream and it's in products that people are you know, using on their phones and in their laptops. So I feel like there needs to be, we need to take a different look at it and create some new mechanisms for people to stop that development from happening as opposed to you know, what it looks like in academia. Because it's not academia anymore. It's not an experiment. It's an experiment but it's an experiment with real people, real lives. Um, and we're starting to see that impact across industries. On that second point of empowering people to raise the flag, if there's something wrong, reminds me of an ethics class I took in engineering where we studied many things, but one of the things we studied was the O-ring and the challenger. Yes. And it was known that there was an issue. A flag was raised. But the organization, NASA, didn't respond appropriately. And unfortunately, people lost their lives. Um, and there were some suggestions given in that class for like how to fix this. But I mean, we got Enron, we got like so many different and, and and even like I think it's easy to point and say, you know, Enron, Nazis, this like these big evil organizations, but you don't have to be that evil to like overlook something like this. Do you have thoughts about how how organizations um, build into their framework, allowing people to halt them and say, "Yo, like this is bad. This is this. There's some issues here." I mean, I, I do think it comes along the lines of like cultural change within an organization. I mean, there's organizations that are starting this process. The larger the organization is, the harder it is going to be to really get a handle on it. So I. It's why I recently joined a startup because we're, you know, you're in this, we're in a hyper growth stage. We're massively growing, but we're small enough that we can set standards and create practices that are different than the 1984 version of this company might've been or the 1994 or even the 2004. So I think it's a, you know, you can't, not all of us can quit these big companies and just start a startup and change the world that way. Um, that's the way I went. But what can we do inside a company? One thing I'll tell you that I struggled with, I went to an organization, I won't name names, but I went into an organization and I was a leader and I was the kind of person who would like pull the chain, stop the train. We are not doing this work because it's not right. 
And what ended up happening was, is the only way I would know that as a leader is for the people on my team to tell me that that is happening. And the funny thing that happened was, you know, Slack or Teams, as I joined channels as a leader, I joined channels where I would hear of these types of issues and they kicked me out. They kicked me out. They literally were like, oh, no, 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 we don't want leaders in here. For whatever reason, I was like, I, who hurt you? I'm sorry that whatever that was, that was I'm not going to do that. That was the culture that was established. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, but like, like they were afraid of leadership. And what was worse is I literally was the leader they needed, wanted, were asking for. Yeah. And they, and they were the workers. And they literally were like, you can't sit at this table. And I was like, where, where am I going to go now? And I literally felt extremely alone. And I feel like most minorities in leadership probably feel this way. Because the group they used to be in, like, no longer thinks that they're safe in that group. And now you're a leader, but you're a minority. So you don't really have a strong voice at that table either. It's a really, really tough place to be. And when you're trying to call, you know, people on bad behavior or people on making poor or maybe just ignorant ethical choices without the support of either side, it's almost impossible. I see why people quit and stop because it it's frustrating to not have support either from people who work for you or from the people you work for. Like you're like this lone, you know, you were, you were their Batman. You were the hero they deserved, but not the one they needed. At the moment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so sad, but so true. This is the tear, the one tear that goes <laughs> when I see this scene. <laughs> what, um, like you talk about the accountability and we look at like Mark Zuckerberg, that guy, Mark Zuckerberg, yeah. um, um, Facebook CEO in front of Congress talking about regulating. Like what role do you think government plays in that accountability component? Because there's this thing, I'm going to go on a tangent, um, <laughs> that Simon Sinek talks about in the infinite game about ethical decay, right? And, Simon Sinek. Yeah, me too. <laughs> And AI has a significant ethical decay is the 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 incremental act of growth in um, ethical um, poor ethical decision making that starts with the one time you do something and then it's like well I guess I didn't get caught it's not so bad then I'll do it twice more and then all of a sudden Wells Fargo is creating thousands yeah. upon thousands of fake accounts right so yeah. um, how so AI, it's easy, like the, the amount of scale that you can create and you could, you could decay ethically in a day, let yeah. alone over time, right? In because you can yeah. train the algorithm to, to ethically decay, not, not on purpose. So yeah. where, where, I guess, I mean, the question, and I say all that for maybe the audience, but, um, where does government play a role? And before, sorry, before we go to this question, can we talk about a I think a fairly basic assumption that we we three I think understand that people may not is the the data that's being how how bias happens in AI and the data being ingested and what that means to a system. Maybe you could talk us through some of that and yeah. then we go into this because I think that underlies like why ethical decay can happen so quickly in AI systems. Mm. Yes, I totally yeah. agree. Um, that's yeah, it's a good foundation to understand like why would we even need intervention? Um, because our, uh, many of us, our instincts is to be like, we don't need that kind of intervention. But AI, what I right? have, 
like it's yeah it's like it's perfect it's, it's yeah, it's robot yeah. That's like oh my gosh taking all of the data it's the it's so the it's robots better, doing it right? that's right yeah robots are the ones um yeah and it's the machine <laughs> that's the problem so one thing that i uncovered in my early days i, I started at alexa in my early days at alexa it was my introduction to artificial intelligence one thing that i under that I realized very early on was that I looked around and none of us were like triple PhD academic. We were just devs building an AI model. Developers. Developers. Thank you. Yeah. Developers. Like we were just software engineers building something that had never been built before. And we didn't even know if it would work. Honestly, it had not been launched. No one had talked to a kitchen device before. And in those moments, you have that, that, this is exactly where ethical decay happens, right? Because you're like, I mean, no one's ever going to use this anyway. Like, what difference does it make if we don't program in, you know, the sound of people's voices who are from New Jersey versus from Mississippi or from people who don't speak English natively versus, you know, people who were born and raised in the United States. Um, and so it was just very interesting. Like, we just kind of let things go because we didn't think anything would come of it. 100 million users later, in an extremely short period of time, I got very convicted about that, where I was like, whoa, we were not prepared for that. And I think that's the burden is on the company. When you decide to use AI, that's why I have a concept in my mindful leadership training on building an AI manifesto. Like You have to be very deliberate from the beginning about how you're going to use this technology. Because you have no idea what you're going to build. And what's worse, you don't know how that data is going to get used. So the use case that we've got all these utterances for, for Alexa, to set timers and buttons, we don't. We gave that data away the day we bought the device. And we signed, all of us, explicitly, some of us, like, excitedly signed away our user, you know, our data and said, absolutely, take my data if I get to talk to a kitchen device. That's amazing. Right. So we get all excited about the outcome. We don't think about, you know, obviously what will be done with that data. So so bias in AI now that like this goes back to originally the algorithmic fairness idea is that if you look at the tech industry and those people building models, it is very homogeneous. It's a known fact. Right. The Gates Foundation did this whole, uh, whole study on reboot representation. And we're like in the single digits, like it's dismal. Um, it's a so super it's, nice way to say it's white men. Yeah. I try like, to avoid the it trigger. Very white men. Super, super yeah. nice. No, way. not on our show. No, no. no. It's fact. Um, I can say it. I can say it. Yeah, you know. can say it. It's yeah, white men. Because your, yeah. your people love, know, and trust you. <laughs> I'm still building my friends here. <laughs> um, but yeah, so we have this, you know, this industry that is homogeneous, and now they're building technology that is going to make predictions based on how they feed it data. And the funny slash sad thing about that is that when they're building and training these models with data, they look at that data and it mirrors themselves. So they don't actually see anything wrong with it. It actually isn't wrong for them. Like they look at it and they're like, yeah, it's good. This, it works for me, right? It's just like a developer joke is always like, well, it works on my machine. I don't know why it's broken. <laughs> But that's like, that's like classic bias, right? Like, right. hey, if, if it works for me, I don't yeah. know why it wouldn't It's work. not broken in my life, so something's yeah. wrong with you, not me. Yeah. That's right. And then like a layer deeper is like a lot of the data that they're pulling to then analyze has also had those same biases put on it. Like if we're looking at nutritional info or medical info, like 
most medical studies are, are made for white men between the ages yeah. of 20 and 40. It has nothing to do with children, black yeah. men, black women, Latinas, like nothing. It's just so like the data that they're biasing has already been biased. That's right. And, and even if they looked at it, a, they yeah. wouldn't see that it's broken, like because they right. see themselves. Right. So it's like this. Exactly. Yeah, it just keeps on doubling up on each other. And so algorithmic fairness is the uncovering of, there's so many, I just recently did a, a 12 video series on like black women in AI who just got like me convicted about like, wait, why is this so wrong when it comes to anyone other than being white? And that's, and they've all uncovered like in many, many research studies that this bias shows up because we are not investing. Like that's fine if your data set starts that way, but now we know better. So your very next step is to say, okay, how do I diversify the data set? And the funny thing, like facial recognition is going through this right now. Companies are quitting. They're literally shutting down their facial recognition models instead of going, oh, you know what we should do? We should go put more boots on the ground in the field and collect diverse data from the audiences that are missing. But instead they're like, we're out, right? They're tapping out of the game instead of doing the right thing, which is fix the model. And that's where I kind of feel like the, you know, the government side of the business or regulation yeah. can help because right now you can opt in and opt out. And it looks like when somebody opts out, oh, we're going to turn off facial recognition because it's got diversity issues on the surface. That sounds like a good thing, but it, they're not actually fixing the problem, <laughs> right? They're not even addressing the problem. They're just going to stop doing the thing. It's like a kid who gets in trouble, right? They're like, well, I won't do that thing anymore, but I'm still going to do these other things. Right? I'm going to go get cookies out of a different jar. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a much bigger problem to watch very large companies opt out of doing the right thing, which is build a more expensive, mind you, but a more diverse data set that would create the right results. Um, yeah. And I think regulation could help us at least hold companies accountable for like if you're in that space and collecting that data. Yeah, you're going to need to do, you're going to need to build for diversity on the outset, like at the jump, as opposed to having to fix it after the fact when someone calls you out in a research article saying, hey, you, you didn't do this right. Which Facial is hard to do when the teams building it aren't diverse. So they just don't have that thought coming in. That's right. That's the challenge. It's, it's the, uh, suddenly it becomes the, the technology that's the problem versus the inputs. And it's a great, I mean, I think facial recognition is a great example of, um, why diversity is important. If anybody's questioning whether it is, obviously there's a ton of science and a ton of research out there that explains having diverse viewpoints, but this is a, this is a practical one-to-one -one ratio of why it can greatly impact the product that you're delivering. But on that idea of facial recognition, how do you feel about it as a technology? So I personally, I like it from the perspective of it helps me do things as a user, right? I use facial recognition on my phone. Um, I use facial recognition in on like my door. Um, I'm, I have a hundred on your door. Yeah. With the ring doorbell. System. Oh, got it. Got it. Yeah. So, so it knows who I am and, and I'm also a single parent and I live at home with my children and my dad who's incapacitated to a degree. And so I want, I, I appreciate facial recognition that says you're not who I, who I know. And it alerts me. And then of course the discernment though is still on the human to go, okay, but that's okay. It's the male person or okay. That's okay. It's the UPS guy. Um, my challenge with facial recognition 
is those organizations like facial recognition is a model that is commoditized. It is democratized. Anyone with a boot camp, you know, degree certificate that says they can write web applications can now go and use facial recognition in their app. And I used to be an AI for everyone advocate. I used to say AI for all, everyone can use AI. This is so great. Until I realized that we're not all good actors. There are bad actors out there. And there are people that are going to use that, you know, either purposely or accidentally to actually cause harm. So there's now a recent article just showed that facial recognition used in hiring, which I knew it the second it came out. I was like, that is bad news. Bad idea. Yeah. <laughs> but now they've got enough data to show that when you are like, you cannot use someone's face to determine whether you're going to hire somebody or not, especially in tech, like where we're kind of socially awkward anyway, and we don't look at the camera and we like, it was making all these assumptions like, oh, averts eyes is not telling the truth, right? Or like these mm. weird assessments of somebody, which weren't, of course, accurate. And and now an entire industry is like, oh, well, we can't use facial recognition. And but I see have, it. This is like a big, a big challenge with science in general, like genetics and, and looking at DNA oh. and cloning. And yeah. Like, how do you... How do you think about regulating such things that belong to everyone and no one? I like, I mean, I like research. This is why whenever I go to a company, I start talking to them about using AI. I always encourage them, even if they're like, you know, Geico or Caterpillar or John Deere, you know, like create, even if it's a two person organization, create an R and D team, like a team that just does research because a, the AI model is only as good as the data. And if you're really thinking about artificial intelligence, the data you use should be your data, like your customers or your constituents or your stakeholders. Um, and so, but you have to test it and it should be an experiment and you should be able to play around with it without government necessarily coming in and being like, you can't do that, right? Mm -hmm. There should be a phase of innovation that happens without like the thumb of the government saying what you can and can't do. When you go to put something in production and mark, like actually go to market with something. Where you're trying to scale your user base at the end yeah, of the day. And yeah. And you're like making money on the thing. You are productizing the thing. That's where I feel like there could be a, at least some guardrails to protect us from those who, honestly, when you start using these models as black boxes, you might not even know what you're doing. Like most people don't know. They like the output. But they don't realize you can't actually trust the output if you made one mistake in your ground truth, which is the data you train it on, right? You make one mistake. We saw this in Alexa. We had some weird glitch happen or some database got like a view got deleted or some, you know, some common production issue that happens in every tech company. It, but it shifted the accuracy of the entire model. And the only way we caught it was because every single day we looked at it. And we mapped it against its existing trajectory and our ground truth and the values of the org. Like it was very deliberate. And I don't think enough people that are implementing AI even think that deeply about it, right? They don't think like, what, what is my ground truth? What is the truth about this data that I want to create predictions on? How do I validate that those predictions are continuing to be accurate? Instead of they start accurate and when they start slipping, you don't even notice. And that's the danger, I think, of some of these technologies without some kind of accountability measure, whether that's government, it could even be a third party consortium. Yeah. I'm good with that. I think it's um, 
the whole facial recognition thing with what was it 600 police departments around the country have have implemented it based on this in particular one individual one company i can't remember the name of the company um that is selling it like it is going to help in when this is why it's so important and this is where i think it's such a messy space because it's so complicated yeah and if we took um psychology but let's let's take medicine medicine's a better example and we said basically anybody can be a doctor yeah right um just you know learn to learn the body parts and now you can go diagnose and then yeah, go out, spin up a practice. WebMD, as you're yeah, like that. Right. Now go spin up a practice and go start telling people that they can get rid of their cancer with um, the rocks in their front yard. Right. I don't know. Right. Whatever. Like, yeah. Whatever has worked for you. And this is, the, this is the comparison of AI. Like AI people think, oh, machines, they're learning. Yeah, but they're fed a whole bunch of data that only you know. Yes. Right. I mean, Rodney and I, Rodney talks about this, or we share this uh, experience often, or when we go through the hiring process, you know, um, if someone's first language is not English, their communication style may seem like they're slow or that they're, they don't have the energy that you're looking for. They don't have the ability, but really they're translating. They're translating to English and it has nothing to do with their work ethic, their ability to do the job, but we judge it. And then you put that into a model of facial recognition and says that that person who might have grown up in this particular background and experience just avoided eye contact. So they're liars. Yeah. Like that's messed up. Or looked up and to the right or whatever, whatever pattern they've seen that ended up yielding a bad hire. Right. It's so dangerous. It's so dangerous. I, I facial recognition is, I think I'm, I'm actually okay with organizations backing out of it. Not for the reason that they obviously can't diversify it. I just think it's super dangerous. Well, they're yeah. backing I like out the idea still, of, they're still making the products. They're just backing out from fixing the issue. Yeah. Yeah. That's my, my biggest concern is like, yeah. they're just going to a different jar and mm. they're still using models. And if that is a philosophy of your business, you're going to still have ethical issues. We just won't see them as easily because facial recognition, that's easy to see. It's very transparent yeah. when it's wrong, right? Yes. You feed it somebody and you're like, oh, you know, like I just did this, you know, where I, there's a model that does pixelated people to, and it tries to figure out who they are. And it was, of course, you know, flawed um, mm-hmm. and was much better at predicting pixelated white people than any other race. And that's not uncommon, but do I want to productize something that is inherently biased that way without trying to fix it? I just, I think there's, I do like though, facial recognition can be a part of a bigger solution. Mm. So for example, if I, as a police officer, have to go to a car, get someone's driver's license, go back to my car, type in their number, pull up a face, right? If I could use facial recognition to look up 10 driver's licenses that kind of look like the person that I'm talking to. By the time I get back to my car, all of that's been done and I get to do my job faster, which actually serves everybody, right? It gets that person their ticket faster and they can go on their merry way. That person, the cop gets to do more. So how do we augment, right? People's existing job and make them better at what they do 
as opposed to making it the sole solution mm. that discerns and makes the decision. Like, there's no reason AI needs to do that. Yeah. Why we would it's, let it's companies tell much, us a solution to do that, that doesn't make sense to me. Because <laughs> cops like, are better at that. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a conversation that Keith and I have about logic versus emotions. Um, some people lean all the way on logic or all the way on emotions. And it's like, no, no, like, it's all input. It's all data. And then you need to discern what's true, like yeah. how and how the data applies to the situation or are the emotions like they're valid? Yes. But are they true? Like, is it actually informing you about what's happening? Same with AI. Like, is it actually valid what it's what it's feeding back and using it as an extra input? Listening to all this, I keep thinking of the Manhattan Project and I'm like, tried to teach us. It tried to teach us. Like there are organizations who will use scientists because scientists, if, if a scientist could get the money and the funding to go do the thing that they care about, which has nothing to do about blowing up cities, they'll go do it because they don't see the bigger political issue because that's not what they're focused on. Um, what like we need some kind of like a ethical scientist like layer. And of course, the organization that wants to use it for you know, world domination isn't going to throw that in there. And, yeah. um, and then the problem with the government, at least the one in this country, is that it tends to hire the companies that it's watchdogging to be their own watchdogs. <laughs> so yeah. I don't know how... So that's that broken. <laughs> that's a, that's, that's broken. a different system that needs to be fixed. <laughs> and you add into like, I mean, just think about the peer review. Like, capitalism prevents it right if microsoft said hey we've got this technology now aws go puke on it right yeah. because it matters and let's yeah. get your perspective not a chance that would ever happen right no, it's actually why i've always said why wouldn't we i watch companies you know as i go into different ceo boardrooms and talk to their executives about ai they will they will present the same problems. All these companies have the same problems. I'm like, you know, especially in healthcare, if we shared our data set, we'd be able to solve some of these problems, but they won't. They're like, no, no, those are my cards. Those, that's, that's my, my IP. Yeah, that's my IP. Like, Scarcity yeah. mindset. But yeah, exactly, exactly. And it is a mindset issue. And I, I, this is part of the reason why I was like, I'm going back to the front of the funnel to train people to change their mindset going in so that they realize that data isn't actually the value that they're giving. Like that's not where your value is. Your value isn't what you're going to do with that data. And now it makes sense. You all get better, right? If you all share that data, but we're, I think uh, we had mentioned it earlier. We're just too young as an industry, like too inexperienced with productizing AI to realize the value in this because we did this, we've done this. It's kind of like a roller coaster, right? We, we do this every 10 years. A new thing comes out. We hide it from each other. Then we figure out, oh, wait, there's better. We're better, you know, better working later. together. You know, yeah, let's not, like yeah. open source it. Yeah. Um, so every decade. Yeah, it's just a matter of maybe. Every decade. There's, there's so, a really good speech by yeah. a, he's a principal engineer at Microsoft talking about like the, the decades of tech. Um, I think he starts with the mainframe. Yeah, he does start with mainframe all the way up through present day. Yeah. And it's fascinating how the cycle continues to repeat it's all about developers you got to love your developers yeah. do you speaking of so to that point you mentioned it earlier we've got a bunch of developers trying to create this ai tech that is listening for social cues social differences all of these things how do you 
like these technologies require a vast set of expertise to actually implement effectively. Whatever the technology is, when you're talking about AI, you're trying your medical AI needs medical professional input, not yes. just data input, right? That yeah. a coder can take. How do you put those two together in any field for whatever it may be? Yeah, gosh. So as a matter of fact, this is like a huge platform that I have tried to articulate to organizations. Last year, I went to, it started at Abbey Road. And I was like, have to tell the young people what Abbey Road. Abbey Road is. It was awesome. So we did yeah. this hackathon at Abbey Road. It was the first of its kind. We brought data scientists and engineers and sat them with exactly what you're saying, like the subject matter experts in that space. And the outcome, like the, is funny because the team was very nervous. They're like, is this going okay? Like, does it look like a high school dance where like the scientists were on one side and like the musicians were on the other side and they didn't want to talk to each other. But as they began to collaborate, AI and really any software is better, right? When you look at the pain of the person who needs it and you build off That's of that strange pain. concept. And so it was funny because that worked out. I mean, I was like, this is, Everyone yeah. should do this. You should yeah. combine it. And then I got to go to the Metropolitan Museum of Art and do the exact same thing where we brought in MIT's data scientists and we sat them right alongside with, you know, the curators at the Met who knew nothing about tech. As a matter of fact, I believe the words that they started off saying were things like art and AI have no business being in the same vicinity. Um, but magic happened. We ended up being familial at the end, like hugging each other goodbye. Um, because they realized that if you do it right, if you take the pain, the curator's pain was labeling and tagging things. And I don't know if you know about this, but unfortunately, there is also a homogeneity in the curation like <laughs> system. Oh, yeah. um, and so they've tagged things, even in ethnic, uh, cultural, right? They tag it like an American or like an English person um, or like someone from Europe. They tag it, even though it actually has rich historical value in a totally different culture that they can't speak to, but it'll never be cataloged that way because they didn't know the words to say. So mm. it was interesting though, because that's where AI can help. AI can actually surface that as a, as a flag, like, Hey, you know what? I know this data set that includes this diversity. You haven't mentioned any of these. Maybe these are words you might want to use. We call it like tag helper or whatever. And that was, again, for the curators, they were like, convinced that's it i'm good <laughs> like that's the kind of ai we need um but it did it does start off awkward but if you are not like at the hip connected with the domain expert in the area you're trying to use the technology you're gonna miss the mark even if you miss it a little um unfortunately with ai little misses turn into it, big it's misses. it's it's like hitting a golf yeah. ball well yeah it's I mean, crazy so um yeah familiar. so i'm now as a result of those two experiences if I see an AI project or if I'm judging, which I judge uh, hackathons all the time, and the only person on the team is the engineer who happens to also be maybe someone who's suffering from the problem they're trying to solve, but it's not enough. Like if they're trying to build a medical prop, like a uh, solution, then they have to have someone from the medical field on their yeah. team because they're going to keep it real. They're going to be like, yeah, I know you want to be able to get that data. HIPAA doesn't let you do that. And they're like, HIPAA, oh, right. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. like you miss critical parts of solution providing if you don't bring the tech right alongside with those domain experts in each industry. Yeah, I think they're critical. They, you can't have one without the other. Um, 
So I'm going to ask the question that I wanted to ask at the top, and I might just slide our producer 20 so it gets put at the top. Um, <laughs> is Skynet, is Skynet going to kill us? Does Skynet exist? Have you asked Alexa? It's an easy uh, No, I haven't asked Alexa. <laughs> um, well, that, that's going to be the follow-up question, actually, is does Skynet, I, does Skynet exist? But what's your take on malevolent AI once we yeah. get to real AI? So, I mean, I guess it's very similar to my take on malevolent humans. Um, because I am very well aware of how how real, how AI works. So now um, I built a skill, I built a bunch of skills, over a hundred skills for Amazon Alexa. Some of them became very, very popular. They were, none of them I would consider artificial intelligence now that I understand what that means, having algorithms and decision-making. However, I go to my dad, I'm like, hey dad, try out my new skill. And he tries it out and his eyes light up and he's like, that, how did it, how did it know it's my birthday? Yeah. Or how did it know that that's my favorite book? Or, you know, like, all these things that it seems like magic to the user. It seems like art. I mean, that's exactly what artificial intelligence is, right? It's called the, you know, Alan Turing, uh, the Turing test. All we have to do is convince a human. <laughs> so if we can convince a human, you know, that it it's kind of like a human did this work. That That's the baseline, which is a very low bar, low bar. to reach. Mm -hmm. So our technology, if you look inside of it, is not super complex. Are there people pushing the edge of that? Sure, but not at a scale that I am concerned about. I think if you watch Black Mirror, you'll be more anxious because it leads us to believe that people are far more along than they are. But that I, I was raised on the golden age of science fiction, and those stories don't end well either. Frankly, um, well, let's like let's. So I want that. Let's talk about general versus specific AI. Like yeah. Is because I think a lot because that's the thing people are conflating the two and they don't even yes. know that there's a difference between just like something that's running as you just mentioned algorithms that seems pretty cool it's just like it's a yeah. set process though or it's very specific to turning on that light and turning off the stove yeah we call it AI but it's really just a neat function yeah or like, like a decision you know. tree right it yeah, waits for exactly. you to say something and then based on that it makes a decision and then AI gets more complex when you let it give you a prediction of what you think it might say based on data, right? So if you've got, you know, let's say it's turning on the light at eight o'clock in the morning and you do that every day for a month. And then you say, you know, you create a program that says, if it's eight o'clock, you go ahead and decide whether to turn that light on or off based on how many times I've turned it on or off in the past. And it will create a percentage that says, well, I'm 90% sure you're going to turn it on because it's 8 a.m. and you turn it on at 8 a.m. every single day. And that's how AI evolves, right? It starts off literally with being a decision tree, a regex for those devs, developers out there. But it's like a decision tree that just says, you're going to do, you know, here's one decision and that decision leads, but we script it, we hand write it in. Um, and then we start letting, because we're collecting data, we start creating opportunities for based on the data, for the computer to make an assumption. So look at all the data and go, okay, at eight o'clock, you do this all the time. So chances are 70% sure you're gonna do it again now. And even then, no decision is made. The only thing you get out of AI is a percentage. It's up to a developer to say, if it's 70% or higher, do a thing. If it's 70% or lower, don't do a thing. That's a, like an engineer is writing that logic. Um, I mean, it gets more complicated as you move into different types of models. 
But yeah, I'm not so Skynet and you know Terminators it, and things like that. For it to be that kind of AI, it would have to be able to make that decision on its own. Yes, and, and there even, are from, even like, create its like, own decision trees. That's right, and I think for what you were saying about specialization, we do have enough data about very specific decisions that it could do that. But to make those decisions, like the human brain across all experiences in humanity, based on that far, one decision, far. Like, yeah, not in my, I can't see that happening. Yeah, I do think we should be worried about it because it's just like what we were saying about um, the that book about Simon's book, right? Where oh, yeah. ethical decay, decay, right? Yeah. It starts with literally the decisions we're making now. Yeah, in twenty years. You know, our kids are going to be like, seriously, you couldn't kept, you couldn't figure this out. You couldn't make a better ethical choice. You couldn't stop yeah. that model before it started. So I could see the trajectory of a Skynet because and, we're not deliberate in our choices in making models and deploying them right now. And, and if we're not deliberate, we have no control. There's a couple of professors that talk about it and how the train has left the track. It doesn't mean that we can't pull it back or like start to evaluate those things, but we're we're far along in developing enough of this stuff that it will have long-reaching implications if we don't start to... And this really goes into it. the infinite game versus the finite game and the cost to catch those things if you're yeah. a finite-minded individual and all you're worried about is, okay, that code has left the track and there might be a semicolon instead of a colon, which changes... It's, it's the butterfly effect in code, right? right? And it can just drastically 20 years from now who's going to pay to go have that fixed versus okay. the person who's thinking about 20 years from now that might invest now to make sure it's right because of the cost right. that it'll have in 20 years. And this, I mean, it's, it's a slippery slope with AI, but um, how did you get started with it? So I got started because, and I think this is an interesting story. I was working in AWS as a training manager and my career up to that point had been mostly training hmm. and certification management I was that at VMware. Um, I, you know, helped create a bunch of certifications and I hired a bunch of instructors. And so I went to Amazon AWS to do the same thing. And that was in 2013. And in 2014, Alexa was born. And I literally saw the job description for this vague thing that looked cool. And I was like, I'm totally going to do that. Sad story, funny story. My manager at the time was like, there's no way you're technical enough to get into that space. Don't mm -hmm. even bother. My manager, supposedly my coach. Don't bother. I wouldn't even try. Like, why how, would how did your manager assess your technical skill in making that uh, that claim? I, I don't believe there was an assessment. It was um, just... granted, up until that point, I was fighting that perception to like let let me teach. I'm not just a manager. I want to teach too, and they wouldn't let me teach. It was anyway issues. Um, but even with that, because so many of us have even people that we love whisper in our ear, like, yeah, I don't know if that's really like the right thing for you. Um, so I took that in, like I understood, I heard it and I went anyway. Um, and I went around, you know, because at that time I had to actually go through my manager to ask to move because I had been in my role long enough. And so I was like, that's okay. So I went to this person and I was like, look, I'm super excited about this. Here's my demonstrated aptitude to learn a new thing, which I do. I mean, as technologists, we do all the time. I want to dive into this. And I was like employee 10 on the team. It was crazy. I mean, who now I look back and I'm like, oh my gosh, you people. <laughs> it's like thousands of people in that world now. Um, split across the country and different continents. Yeah. Uh, but at the time I was like employee 10. So I got into Alexa by just jumping into something I knew nothing about because I saw, and I said this on NBC Nightly News, I was like, 
I saw an opportunity for my son who has Down syndrome and my dad who's like aging and cognitively impaired. I was like, wait, if I could open up voice to them so that they could do the same things they could have done if they were typically developing or could have done if they were 20 years younger on a computer with a mouse and a keyboard, I could make every you know app available to them with their voice. I want to be part of that. Um, and so they, yeah, they let me go play. I became an evangelist and a solutions architect. I built a bunch of skills. I trained a bunch of people. Um, and then I ended up moving to Microsoft after that and getting more involved in a, a voice plus, right. And all the cognitive services and different models that are available there. But, um, but yeah, I jumped in. Jumped in. How? <laughs> we both wait for each other and then we both start talking. <laughs> uh, go ahead. Okay. How did you beat that perception? Like, because a lot of us do listen to the story that we're told, right? You're not technical enough. I mean, yeah. I've, I've fallen victim to this my entire life. Yeah. And you were just like, okay, cool. Like, I yeah. appreciate you telling me that, but I got me. Yeah. Like, where does that come from? Unfortunately, um, that was not a lesson I learned like just then. So mm. my entire career, I, just like you said, like this happens to us all the time. I call it wing clipping. Like they clip my wings. Every company I've ever been in is like, so here's where we see your capabilities clip and you stay yeah. right here and don't go anywhere. Um, and I never, I'm ambitious. So I'm never in, I always want to grow. Uh, so but one thing that my dad taught me at the age of six was the art of like meditation and mindfulness. He didn't call it that. It was literally like sit down and breathe <laughs> was kind of what it was. But I learned to spend time in the silence. And as a result, over decades, I spend time in the silence every day. But now I'm very in tune with how I feel when someone says something to me. And I know if it's true or not true because like I have this intuition that I, I can hear the small voice in my head louder than that voice from this guy or this woman telling me you're not capable of doing that thing. So I think I was lucky that early, and I do this with my children now, I'm like, no, I don't tell them like, go meditate. I'm just like, you know what? Now's a good time to just sit down and take three breaths. Just quiet your mind and just listen to how you, what is, it's kind of like what you were saying, Rodney, about your emotions, right? How do you know if those emotions are true? Or if they're just like in this minute, you're really mad, but then I like the idea of evolving my thinking about something. So that's another piece of it, right? I, I understand my, like, I understand my value because I listen to it all the time and I talk to myself all the time, but then I also have to apply it. Um, so I have to be in situations where I'm willing to stand up. And so I, this was a big one, but there are days, every single day, there's a moment where I can feel myself saying, don't say that. Don't talk to that person. Sit down. Like I do it to myself. And so becoming aware of how we quiet our own selves when somebody else does it, you know, we, we just, we can flex that muscle more easily. Um, so that in those moments when you need to, I mean, literally that decision changed the trajectory of my life. Yeah. Every award you spouted off was not possible unless I said yes in that moment. Um, yeah. And so I, I think mindfulness and like stillness and knowing myself and then being willing to stand up for myself. Um, but it took decades to get there. I hope the world doesn't need to do that. I hope we get there faster over time. Uh, we're centuries in and still struggling. But <laughs> um, all of those things you just mentioned, mindfulness, stillness, 
knowing yourself, understanding your value. So take us like take us back a little bit um, to anyone, pick anyone. Like where did it? You said decades back. Where did it start? Like how did it start? If, if you're okay to share, sounds like your dad was a big part of it. Yeah, I mean that was like. I didn't know what he was doing. You know, I didn't sure. know that he was like setting me up for success, but I'd say my first like career moment was when I was, um, I was teaching a class. I was a young Y2K. Gosh, did mm. I say that out loud? But anyway, yeah, Y2K. I, um, I, you know, it's just like now. So I always tell people who are like, Oh, I can't get into tech. Like I would never be able to get a job. I'm like, there's cycles within, you know, tech where, We'll take anybody if you're willing to learn the thing because we need more bodies and we're in this in data right now. We need people who are willing to manage data and build data, you know, visualizations. Back then they needed Java developers. And so I became a Java developer. I then became an instructor for IBM. I did it for 12 years. But in the very first three or four months as I was learning, I didn't, I was one chapter ahead of my students. Like I barely knew what I was doing. And every single class, and specifically, this was like three months in where I realized this was a pattern and I would have to deal with this. The first 10 minutes of class, the white, it was all white men that I would teach. And most of them double my age. Cause I was like 20. They would just start asking questions that were out of the scope of the class just to like figure out, like, do you know what you're saying? Test and, you. Yeah. And, yeah. and, but in a mean way, like it mm -hmm. wasn't like, Hey, just curious, you know, like, are we going to cover this? Gate. It was, it, was, it, was like, a, it was a it was a leading question. It was yeah, a deliberate. And it was kind of like yeah. with the chin lift, you know, like, yeah, hey. Yeah. <laughs> I know more than you. But it's, it's gatekeeping. It's saying you don't belong here and I'm yeah. going to prove it. That's right. And I'm going to prove it in front of all these people. I'm going to knock you down a peg or two. Yeah. yeah. And so I'm nice. I've always been nice. I've always been like kind and professional. And so in the class, I'd be like, I appreciate that question. It's actually not in the scope of this class, you know, and I got good at like handling it. But I remember running to the bathroom and like, bawling my eyes out, like crying, like this sucks. If I have to do this for the rest of my career, why would I ever want to be in tech? Why would I want to do this? And then when I read all these articles that are coming out now about how we can get people into the industry, but we can't keep like diverse people, mm -hmm. but we can't keep them. I understand because you know what, in those classes, I now hire teachers and those teachers get this, it's the same thing. Mm -hmm. If I don't, which is why I'm now building a different curriculum and hoping to attract a different student student base. But if if I go into an all you know homogeneous classroom and put a diverse person in front of it, the same thing happens 20 years later. Um, but in that moment, anyway, I went to the bathroom, I cried, I looked myself in the eye, and I was like, no. <laughs> I, I made a decision and I've used I've made that decision hundreds of times since then. I'm not going to let them win, right? I'm not going to let their so, questioning, like I'm not going to cave. And so as a result, I ended up working harder than everybody I knew. And I do this to this day to my detriment probably, but I work harder in every job I have than everybody that works with me because it's the only way I, you know, it's kind of sad, but I have to quiet. I want to quiet those voices before they even say anything. I'm like, you can't tell me I don't know if I have three more certifications of you. Or if, you know, I built four more businesses than you. I have twice as much revenue than you. Like I've, you know, impacted 20 more accounts than you. So I'm always going, as a minority in tech, I'm always going above and beyond what's necessary. And the crazy thing is, I am still, 
I've never left a job because I wanted to. I was always like, okay, it's, hmm. it's time for you to go, Noel. Like you've reached your, you know, capacity. We, we've had enough of your ambition in this company. Hmm. Um, even though I was an overperformer, you know, like it's like you can't win. Uh, but, but my mindset is always like, as a, you know, the best revenge is success. That's always kind of been my motto. Like, how do I get back at all these people who said I would never be good enough? You know what? I'm just going to, I'm going to be great at it. And, and I'm going to align that greatness with things that I love to do because then it doesn't feel like work. And between those two things, I've been really happy with how my career has gone. Um, even with the judgment and the bad experience. That took me some places um, listening to you talk about that. And I think I, I know I've had a lot of those experiences and different than you being a black woman. Um, it, it's on another level than what I've experienced. But that comment, the comment that triggered me specifically was I've always had to work harder. And um, yeah. I have. And the 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 hardest thing in the world is explaining that to somebody who's never had to. Um Yeah, I literally I have this conversation, especially it's kind of nice now that we're in this moment um where we're openly saying things that I at least haven't in my his in my career been able to say mm-hmm. about what privilege looks like and like promotions. I watch I've ha- I've hired people who've gotten promoted faster than I did. And I'm like, but wait, wait, wait he works for me. <laughs> like I hired that guy. Um, I call it the golden boy syndrome, which is terrible. But like I watch these, you know, white kids almost like 25 years old. And now, wait, I'm going to work for him. Oh, okay. I mean, it's fine. I'm cool. I can work harder. Um, but it's funny because in my old, one of my old, previous jobs, I had someone who I hired who was um, a person of color and like had my same expertise, I would say, like same experience. I'd actually worked with him and brought him to multiple companies. And the interesting thing was he was the prime person suited to take my job when I left, though I've learned over time not to mention that because it deters people from going that route. So I didn't mention it, but he was easy candidate, person of color, same exact expertise as me. Anyway, then, so I'm watching, I watch his career because I'm friends with him and I'm watching all these other people on the same team who've been there in less time, but we're not people of color, get the job that he has openly asked for. Six, or no, maybe four years later, a total of six years, but four years after that, he got that job. But it took him four years Mm. and it, Took him four years of being willing to say, I still want it. And I'm still going to, how many people, especially I think of Latinas, like Latinas are like, you know what? I'm out. Like, I understand why there's not a lot of us because we're impatient and intolerant of bad behavior. But there's some of us like me who I'm like, you know what? No, I'm going to be an example because I have girls and I have children and I want them to look up and go, oh, that's me up there. I see me. And that's a big part. You know, I, I lost it the other day talking to a friend of mine, you know, I got like tears in my eyes because I was like, when I looked up as a kid, I never saw me ever. Even now I don't see me when I'm a leader. I look up and I don't see me up there. Like, why can't I just have a few of me? Not even, I don't even need like 50%. 
double digits, twelve percent. I'd take. What's what's the cost Easy. for you? What's the cost of doing that? Of being that? Uh, I mean, the cost, of course, is working hard. <laughs> um, and not is, and being is alone. There, is so. there a toll on you? Yeah, you I just think, said you were in tears. You broke down a, a, to a friend. Like, what? What's what's your toll cost? Yeah, I think it comes down to just the pain of knowing my children, as hard as I worked, won't have a different fate. They're going to see the same homogeneity in the industry that I saw. How is that? And I just, when you're 20, you're like, I got this. I can change this. I can inspire people. I can. And then even 10 years into your career, I'm like, no problem. I can get more people into the industry. I, you know, you could see in my career, I've been an advocate out loud most of my career. And to know, and not that I think it's all, you know, like I'm the one who will change it, but to have zero impact and worse, like to see this, you know, report <laughs> and find out our numbers have gone down. Mm -hmm. act like, oh, and then what? Do I quit and make there be less of me? Like it's, that's, I think the, the bigger, the biggest toll is working towards something where you don't see an impact. And then knowing that if you leave there's even less it's of an a impact worse, so it's a worse situation it's a worse situation yeah. and it's already bad <laughs> so it's you know like so when i i had the opportunity to build a, a new team recently and it's expensive to build teams if you wait for a diverse team to show up because it's easy for me to go especially in tech i could throw a rock i shouldn't say that i could throw a pillow and like hit a <laughs> caucasian male yeah um and it was funny because my recruitment team was like, oh, you know, don't worry. Diversity kind of happens by itself. It doesn't. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, okay. doing diversity doesn't happen on accident for sure. In fact, oh. it'll, in fact, it'll, you, you'll keep defaulting to your default without intentional thought. Yeah. And I mean, just what he, what was being said about promotions, you know, I think one of the most interesting things about what like now having this self-awareness about like institutional racism and that like it's a thing and we shouldn't kid ourselves anymore like that's the nice thing about being in this new world of like let's just call it out it actually is happening um but i do think you know i've watched people you know i've been in situations where people of color literally aren't seen the same um but the metrics we call it like the moving target the metrics upon which we are measured change, yep. right? You get to that performance review and they're like, and, and you're like, look, here's the 18 things you told me to do. I did 24. You're like, yeah. Yeah, but you didn't do this. Or, yeah, but oh, or you, you know did what? this thing and it didn't work out. And yeah. it, I'm like, but you just did that yesterday. Like the exact same error that I made, you just made. Yes. But, it, yes. but it's not the same. Like it's compounded. My wife is white and like we've been talking like me, like she'll hear me and my brother talk or me and my dad about like an interaction with an officer or someone. And it's just like, yeah, you know, something's off. Like there's some prejudice or some racist, like something is off in this interaction. And she's like, but how do you know? And like, that's the question because you can't prove it. No, it's not. Nobody's like, yeah, man, I ain't dealing yeah, with you. Yeah, or here's you're like black. the smoking gun statement or the email or whatever, where you could be like, here it is. There it is. There, yeah, it's just like no, but it's like these incremental things in a conversation, 
yes. or, or or working with somebody or working for somebody. And and even when the data is collected and shared, there's there's this I'll call it I'm gonna call it the Colin Kaepernick effect. It is not Colin Kaepernick, but I'm using him because he's a privilege he's seen as a privileged black boy who right. gets to play a game for millions of dollars. So when he chooses to use his platform to stand up for something, people say, sit down. Yes. You you're you should be happy to be there. Like, so if I start to say I have an issue, be like, well, sit, I don't work at Microsoft. Yeah. You you, yeah, yeah. you, you should just be happy just be that glad. you're there. You're you're allowed. You're yeah. allowed to be there. Is the is the sentiment behind this that and and I don't and it's so ingrained in this country that people don't realize that that's what they're saying. I mean, there's there's I got probably ten statements like that that have similar meanings. That well spoken, well spoken, articulate, articulate. So, so spoken. <laughs> and we uh, never. I mean, I hope we do now. But I mean, I just heard that a month ago. Like I heard someone be like, "Oh, I've know. seen it online." Oh, uh, about Candace Owens from. People like, oh, she's so well spoken. Like, okay, when was the last time you said that about your mom? Right, right. right. It's weird. It's a weird thing to say. It is a weird thing to say. And they are those micro moments that like and I don't know. I I don't want to go on this high horse because you know, we only have so much time to go, but it's one of those things that fundamentally like it's okay to talk about race in this country but there is a lot of there are a lot of people that don't want to talk about it not a true statement no i'm i'm not triggering i'm saying i'm saying it from a a moral perspective it should be it should be okay to talk about like my point is like it is okay if we talk about this thing it doesn't have to mean or indict you as a human being and say because I say there are racists in this country, it doesn't make you one. And we can have an honest conversation. And if you say, oh, I'm so well-spoken, or that person's so well-spoken, like understanding why that has a undertone and we can adjust and address. And it's not about political correctness. It's about the environment that we create for everybody. And yeah, and the sad thing I think is that over the 20 plus years I've been in my career, I have now learned that even the things that, seem like would be tools I could use to protect myself are actually tools that are used to like hurt me. You know, where I took, as a leader, I took something called anti-harassment training. Open my eyes about the laws against harassment, which includes specifically like racial harassment and sexual harassment, of course. But I was like, oh my gosh, well, these are, I have literally dozens of stories of of what I've watched people do I now, as a leader, knowing this information, feel like I need to say something. Mm -hmm. And I said something. And the company then opened an investigation, but not to help us. Like, it was to help them. It was to protect them, to make sure that I couldn't sue them. And I was like, oh, no. HR is litigation prevention. Right. Which I was like, oh, no, that's, what do I why would I ever say anything? And I've done, like, I've tested the waters. And like you said, I think, Rodney, around, I've spoken to people and they never say a thing that I, I do now have smoking guns. Like you said, I, you do end up getting something that says like, look, 
It doesn't matter anyway. But more subtly, I've been, I would want to go to a new team and I've done my service and served them well. And the manager that I would be working for would go preemptively to that hiring manager and be like, you know what? There's just something about Noel. I don't know what it is. Something. And literally that's, and she was a white woman. That's all it took. That I was, I had a verbal offer. And they rescinded their verbal offer after that conversation. And I only found this out after much digging and conversation. Yeah, of course, you're not going to, I mean, you can't, they yeah. can't. But it's these microaggressions, right? That, that I don't know that she knew she was changing the trajectory of my career by giving like, this he, weird sense of doubt about my capabilities. Did. Because, like, it, whether, and whether it was conscious or not, like, she definitely did. Because that is, like, the thing that's obviously different is obviously different. Yeah, and right. calling it out says, "Oh, yeah, I don't know if I want." Yeah, yeah. I don't know if I want that one on my team. There's something and that's about all her. it takes. Yeah, that, that it, that's and not it's that thing because you enough, can't. Right, no one can tangibly say a week or two weeks later. In that case, it was instant. But a week or two weeks later, when people say that like haphazardly in meetings, like, oh, right? Gosh, I don't like her really, but I'm not really sure I like her communication style. And it's not even saying you don't. It's like this weird ambiguity. But it then come promotion time, come review time, you start to see like, oh, you, you think I need to work on my communication style? Like I've never heard that before. I've never, you've never said that to me before. And so I'm like talking to people and the sad news is, is that literally all people suffer from these types of behaviors, right? I've had white guys come to me and say, oh my gosh, that's happened to me. Like yeah. it made me realize like as a human race, we're kind of broken. Um, but more importantly, middle management in companies is kind of broken um, because there's like this sacred glass, you know, area that they are in and they don't want other people up there. And so I've hit that glass ceiling uh, and and I, you know, multiple times and I've break, broken through and, you know, figured out ways around it. But it, it's a it's a real thing. How how deliberate can we be in how we choose to talk about people? And realize that as a white individual in a company, those minute things you say that you don't think matter can change the trajectory of someone's life. And I have to believe that she didn't know what she was doing. She would seem like a nice person, but it changed. Like I never, that ended my career in that space hmm. because of her ambiguous doubt. No data. I kept asking the guy, I'm like, did you get any data? Is there performance data? Is there like anything? No, that's not what it's about. If there's I mean, a shadow of a doubt, it's risk. And it's a it risk kind that of, take. It kind of doesn't matter if she knew or not. Because it I definitely know. wasn't positive. Like she was, it, de it definitely didn't have. give her a pass. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it definitely didn't have a positive connotation. But even if she had positive intent, Keith hears me say this all the time. The road to hell is pa paved with that's good right. intentions. Like you can do well-meaning things that have horrible horrible repercussions for people but like nothing about that statement rings of good intention to me um, so i have to just due to time because yes. i think we can keep talking for a long period of time and i apologize for my partial absence in today it's been oh, a right. weird afternoon um it's been fun but um i i'm glad you've enjoyed it because i've i've loved all of our conversations today they've been great but we always end with one okay. one final question 
now that you have acquainted yourself with our audience and they are as much yours, if not more yours than ours, what would you like to leave them with? Uh, yeah, if they take one thing away, it would be to spend time in the silence to get to know the workings of their own mind. And that because with that silence comes your ability to like see a thing when it happens and you can't say, you, you know, see something, say something. If you don't know, if you don't have that intrinsic understanding, um, it's hard for you to call out bad behavior when you see it. And the more still you can be and the more silent you can be and understanding your own emotions and how you react to things and breathing and just being still, I find that that gives you the ability to really have a much sharper radar when you're in a meeting and someone's being treated unfairly, especially you, but even others. And now you can be an advocate for those people. 